0: Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember... Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and of course, along with me today is my friend and
1: colleague, Nitin Gower. Hello, Nitin. Hey, Derek. A never a dull moment, what a week. And I chose oh. this week to come to India and and everything seems to be blowing up. So let's spend some time talking about that with our guest today.
0: Yeah, that's terrific, exactly. And, you know, we always start this program with the statement, never a dull week. It sounds cliché, but frankly, there's never been a dull week.
1: That's true. And it is, it is it just true. It hasn't yeah. been.
0: And so this <laughs> last week is is far from it. Um, I'm not sure that this last week has has put... Um, fiat Currency and Banks in a Fabulous Light. But here today with us is to, is, is, Kristin um, and she's going to help talk through that. So maybe a little bit of a background of that. So firstly, we're delighted to have you. You're very much an esteemed guest for us. Um, and, and, you know, we also fascinated about how you're going to look at this space, because you've written a book called The End of Scarcity, The Dawn of New Abundant World. That's really interesting, and so I think that's going to captivate the audience and put some thought-provoking discussions into all of this. You've had 30 years experience. My gosh, you don't look that old, Kristen. (laughs) You've had 30 years experience, um, and you've accomplished the Senior Vice President of Wealth Management of Raymond James, which is based in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, You certainly had quite an education, so your education includes a master's degree from the prestigious. Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Um, you also hold certificates in FinTech from Massachusetts Institute of Technology and in Money Mechanics from the University of Cumbria in London. So, you know, but beyond your professional accomplishments, I noticed that you've had a life of adventure. Um, your travels have been in- included you to travel around the world. You've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and I've had some friends that have done that and they say it's really hard work um and you've hiked through the Sahara Desert and you've you've enjoyed studying at a at a spiritual school at the foot of the um the footlands of of the Southern India and that I can relate to that having done similar things (laughs) that's fantastic um, and you 've got a certificate of digital currency ex- and expert in and you 're an advocate for financial innovation, so you certainly bring this well rounded view of both life, the fiat monetary system, and blockchain so i 'm going to just jump straight in, Kristen, and i 'm going to ask you a question because in the last week we 've seen a lot of, an- of of activity of course, so i 'm going to say like in the aftermath of silvergate and signature bank and of course silicon valley bank we've seen the federal deposits insurance corporation step in and underwrite the depositors funds um, you know enabling all the the depositors to get their funds back i think that's a very wise move especially considering silicon valley bank is the back but it's the bank that the banks bank with um, in silicon valley and really that's the future of the us and so really worthwhile supporting but at the same time In the last 48 hours, Credit Suisse has turned around and had major client outflows since some incidents it had back in December last year. And the National Bank of Switzerland, the Swiss National Bank as it's called, has stepped in and given them a line of credit of 50 billion Swiss francs to strengthen its liquidity. So with major government institutions stepping in to fix what appears to be a system that's somewhat astray, How do you think the banking system is working at the moment? And how do you think the fiat system is working at the moment? And maybe you give us a bit of an introduction of actually how fiat works at all. Over to you.
2: Oh, it's so wonderful. You know, I think this is sort of what's brewing all the time, unfortunately, in the system. So it's just erupted above the surface. And, um, and this is part of how money, it, it truly is at the root of fiat. And the real root is that I don't think that we completely comprehend how fiat is created. Um, we believe that the money multiplier, fractional reserve lending is well and thriving, and it really, truly is not. So money is simply created through the creation process, where when there is a borrower, the bank creates 100% of the money. So in Europe for a long time, there was no reserve requirement. As of March of 2020, um, reserve requirements went to zero in the United States. And um, and even I would argue for a long time, um, we've seen that with many different kinds of institutions, most quote unquote small banks, you know, under 124 million um, had zero requirement prior anyway, and so that doesn't give us a great deal of confidence, but that's not even the core of the problem. Um, We would find the core of the problem when we sort of look at the boom that happened to Japan years ago, and, um, and you look at how they ended up sort of with pernicious deflation. So, um, and this really kind of goes to the question of, do we centralize with a CBDC, is that the solution, or do we decentralize, um, or do we do some, some combination? And so, when we look at Japan, where really, uh, when they came in and sort of took over and revamped the entire economy, by producing um, on the, the traditional world model that we're using today, by really producing the money for loans, um and doing that through the centralized organization, asset bubbles are absolutely created. So what are we using for money? We say we're using fiat currency. Technically speaking, we're using bank credit. And there is a distinction because when the Fed creates quantitative easing, or quote unquote fiat from the fed it's reserves those reserves are not dollars that are used in the real economy those reserves go to fortify the banking system right so they they there's a big difference between dollars and reserves high powered money and money that we use so technically in the old model we would say okay there was 10% on reserve with the banks and that would allow them to produce you know 90% more in terms of loans but money is truly created when someone comes to the bank and says, I want a mortgage, I want this, I want that. And it's done through double book entry. And so the demand so the demand for loans at, or the creation of loans creates money, which creates demand. And so this fuels the asset bubble. Now, this would be fine, possibly, if the loans were created for true investment capitalism. If they were created for businesses, if they were created for investing in all kinds of things, but the vast majority of these loans are created for consumer debt. And so, when we see the difference between housing prices from 1970 to today, um, housing prices used to be maybe three times one person's salary. College educations were vastly affordable, if not almost free. And today, we have almost indentured servants when children, you know, when young adults are going to school. And we have houses across the board that are almost 10 times salary, and certainly a couple salary in cities. So why is this? And the root of it is really because we're using bank credit through consumer loans as our money. And what happens when those loans are repaid, yes, the loan is retired, but the money in circulation is also destroyed. So there's no separate money base outside of us. There's no consistent stock of money. It's a constant illusion of borrower's debt traveling around that comes into existence when we sign a promissory note to repay it. And then how high the interest rate is, is how fast humans have to run on the hamster wheel to quickly catch it, repay, reborrow, catch it, repay, reborrow. And the lower interest rates are, the slower 1% it has to run on that. So this is the real story behind banking crises. And um, so I would I would start there. And so, um, you know, it, it doesn't even really matter how well capitalized these banks are, because we are wholly and totally dependent on the borrower's ability to continue to borrow for the system to run without um, a risk of total contagion. Mm.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's brilliant, Kristen. So again, thank you for being here. I've met you several times, and Derek, I'll tell you, nothing short of brilliant conversations with with Kristen. And you know, tell our audience, I'm always curious, Kristen, in you know journey of all of us getting into Bitcoin, the introduction, and eventually being enamored with what the technology itself can do, but also the conceptual element of why Bitcoin was born. This is 2008, the financial crisis, post financial crisis. And believe it or not, I, I spent all day yesterday, uh, which is why we are a day late for recording this podcast, in the same, you know, the foothills of a southern state in India, traveling for a religious sort of thing. And I, I spent the entire time going and coming in trying to understand this complex financial system. This is both, again, the quasi, you know, government entity, though many of the central banks are really private, uh, you know, for the most part, they do have some, Influence on the political side of things, but before we go into complexity of that and expansion of that into some of the phenomenon that you described, um, help us understand what what got you sucked into uh, Bitcoin and and how do you see this and tie that to things that you wrote, write about in your book, which by the way, I think is nothing short of brilliant. I mean, you talk about the fact that you know the, the scarcity, which is sort of hallmark of blockchain, and watch sh- how you address scarcity is is quite. Interesting and intriguing that we shouldn't need to have that scarcity as long as we have the economic fundamental you know fundamentals in place. So I'll pause here. Love to get your thoughts on that, Crystal. Uh,
2: yeah. The truth is that we're really living with the illusion of scarcity, right? And so the the natural abundance is actually always flowing. Um, and there is really some confusion around money and scarcity. Bitcoin, when I found Bitcoin I, in 2009, I think I was even on just some chat boards and people were saying, we've started this thing. We need computers. Does anybody want to donate their computer to become a miner? And I was like, I do, I do. But of course, unfortunately, I never knew how to follow through with that (laughs) but i probably would have lost it in the early silk road days anyway um you know i i really um even as a little girl i mean i i had to earn my allowance explaining to my father how the markets worked you know my dad was very much self-taught so when we would come home from school he would say what did my tax dollars buy today in terms of your education So, you know, and that was in the 70s. So I was getting a dollar a week, you know, to um, see if I understood interest rates. Truly, this is how um, amazing and interesting my father was. So I always believed that the markets and everything was working. There was plenty of money out there for everyone. We just had to, you know, find something we fell in love with and contribute to others and life would really flow in the right way. I still believe that, but when 2008 came, I saw that I was missing something and that it was that I truly did not understand how the money we use comes into the real economy. And so um at that point, I think I had opened a tech an economics textbook and it, the first tenant was money has to be scarce to have value. And I thought, what contradiction that was with my spiritual beliefs? And even the knowing of humanity, how we have passions and imagination and interests. And you can't really stop people from wanting to create things and contribute to one another. Mm -hmm. So the basis of Bitcoin, um, which really is wonderful in so many ways, and I'm truly a cheerleader for Bitcoin. I still had a very kind of religious indoctrinated moment when I saw it in 2009 and said, no, it is not money it is not money because it is its value is based in scarcity so it could eventually become a phenomenal store of value um it certainly could be something that could help people either be a speculative type of asset to accumulate wealth sort of in the traditional investment quasi-exploitative model that we would have rather than the abundant flowing model. Um, but you know this the problem when you say money should not be scarce to have value, it sounds sort of heretical, you know and then the mind is posed sort of in this black and white dualistic concept so people think that then I'm automatically saying that money should be unlimited. And of course, that's been the problem with a lot of, you know, early crypto coins and all these things is that there was no concept of value attached to the projects or to the coins that were being created. So money should not be scarce, nor should it be unlimited. It should be constantly equal to the productive value of the people flowing. So just like if we were given a test with 100 equations and we had to say, solve how many solve? If 70 solved, there would be 70 equal signs. There wouldn't be 50. There wouldn't be 100. Or if we had to go and measure a table, we wouldn't have to go and gather the inches first. We would continue to count. So money in its true purpose is meant to be the monetization of barter the equal sign, the standard of measure, the receipt received for contributing to someone else, the store of value, but it has to maintain stable value like the inch or the pound or the scale. And so how can this be done? Well, it's been done many times in history, but it can't be done if money is bank credit coming out as mortgages. And it can't be done if they're only 21 million Bitcoin, right? Right. Even if we can break them into satoshis, and then what I argue, which can be again a little controversial, you know, I don't see it getting outlawed. I, 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 my personal belief is yes, it's going to do well, even though it could be highly speculative in the interim. But you know, if if powers that be wanted to get rid of it, it's very easy to do, um, because once eventually, let's say that the value really. Uh, expands, and then it begins to trade as money, those with significantly more wealth can get on the other side of the trade and quietly take it out of circulation and put it on the shelf. Um, And typically, this is what's happened with all commodities that are quote unquote scarce. We can't really verify how scarce they are. But when you say that gold is the money, um, powers that be that want to politically or somehow economically create a dominance simply can ensure that that commodity is scarce and that it cannot be used for the overall broader credit creation that would be required for true investment.
1: Yeah. So, so if you were to look at, it's a great point, right? Because I've contemplated this whole notion of debasement of currency. This is the base. This is the M0 in, uh, in, in, in contextual term, I think Kristen is, is what you're referring to and post go the, you know, the abolition of gold standard and, during Nixon era, which had some asset backed money supply. Right. And again, there's two, two sides of that debate to say, Hey, we don't have enough gold to be able to support the credit creation that leads to the economic growth. And hence, moving away from gold standard did well for the economy in general. And we see the results of that thinking now. And we've seen that in Italy. We've seen that in, sorry, in in Turkey. In terms of the ability for the governments to borrow and the inability for the governments to be able to be loose with with the monetary policies and eventually fiscal policies. Uh, And I've spent some time studying this to say, hey, what is, if the base itself is sort of drying up, or the base itself is not sound enough for the sound money to be the case, can crypto solve some of that problem to be the truly sort of global currency of sorts? We'd love to get your thoughts on that front because right now, none of the currencies in the world are tied to, they're essentially, again, we've seen that during COVID, six trillion was sort of released and, and that essentially is the, is, is, is the money supply coming you know, at the base. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, only because you know uh, there is this interesting dichotomy between the uh, you know the ability for the world to use money for its true you know sort of value you know f- account and and, and medium of exchange versus value creation which is what I think what your book talks about in terms of producer credits there is more value i think post world war 1 post world war II. we've seen new interesting you know monetary phenomena created with Demirage and you know encouraging people to be able to spend money as opposed to hoard it. Uh, Love to get your thoughts on that, uh, Kristen.
2: You know, what's ironic, especially having a lifetime in wealth management, the first and most important thing that we must start to unwind and really, really embody is that wealth and money are not the same thing. And that, in fact, money is dependent on wealth. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I, I chuckle because I know whenever I say this and 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 I talk about it every day, people say, my gosh, well, you know, there's that confused look. And then people say, well, if if wealth is not money, what on earth is wealth? You know, and um, wealth is truly everything we buy with money. It's everything we create, but first and foremost, it's our imagination, it's our desire to create things, contribute, our passions, our labor, all the plentiful resources of this planet. You know, we can argue whether resources are not distributed well. There's certain certain areas where the planet is, you know, really not doing well. But if we just take an oak tree, how many acorns are produced from one oak tree? You know, the basis of nature is abundance. And so all of this is wealth. We are born wealthy. Every single person is born wealthy. Every time there's a baby coming, that community is more wealthy because there's another being coming with imagination, passions, and gifts. And so we decided whenever it was better to live together, even if at times it's, it's annoying, right? Um, we still, our lives are enriched when we're together. And we have decided that community, because we all create things. And even I argue that we don't even really come to know ourselves until we contribute to one another. And um, so we decided money was a wonderful technology to assist us in better being able to uh, exchange our creations and all of our goods and services. So when you think about it, this to me is sort of now it's right side up. It starts with wealth. Wealth is inherent in us. It can't be separated from us. The desire to begin to manifest it is to create something. And truly, whatever you create a value, someone else actually wants. You know, there there really is sort of this energetic thing that, you know, whatever we're really producing with heart and soul, it's wanted in the world. Now that means that money's in the backseat. It's a technology that we, as in society, created to assist us. So at that point, if it's a mere technology like the phone or the computer or electricity or whatever, has it been designed correctly? And it's been redesigned over and over and over, just mm-hmm. like you were saying when Nixon closed the gold window to foreign enter, uh, you know, to foreign countries in the U.S. in 1971. Um, even with the history of the US, the money system has almost been changed or, or you know, altered in some way almost seven times I think it may even be eight times I Have to go back and look. And so you um, also money probably should be asset backed. So here is something that's a little bit confusing because I'm saying money actually should not have intrinsic value. It's like the equal sign. It shouldn't be scarce. It should be flexible in value, but it should clearly represent some value. Now, If it's gold solely, the quantity is too thin, too small, and it also can be politically controlled by a small group of people or whoever decides to, right? Um, There was tons of freedom and people were much more conscious in the 1800s when money was bimetallic, it was silver and gold. And um, at that point it was more ubiquitous. Silver was always known as the money of the people um, and it allowed for the expansion of the West Um, really, and all the different kinds of projects that were going on because the people had access to money that they could trust without the technology of blockchain. And, um, you know, so we went through, um, really, I would even argue that the Revolutionary War was monetary, it was not religious. When the founding fathers came or the colonists came to the United States, they were all in debt in England. And um, there was just not enough gold circulating. And so they created colonial script, which we're told is just paper out of nothing, which again, when you look at the historical record, that's really not true. Uh, they, They created this paper off of productive farms or land banks. And so the script that they issued represented the productive value of the people. And if the people wanted to be more productive, then they issued more script. And they were very careful about keeping that balance equal, except not all colonies were the same. Rhode Island was, you know, not so fiscally responsible. They issued lots of script and they got inflation. So when the British saw this, and you can also find it in the records, you know, where they called it the great mischief of of the colonists that needed to be stopped, they issued the stamp tax, and and you know soon the Tea Party came. But it wasn't from the tea on the tax; it was from outlawing this this colonial script that was really producer backed money. It really was money that represented the production of the people, and so this is actually what started uh, the Revolutionary War. And 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 the early Americans knew that monetary freedom was the basis of all freedom. So France and England sent tall ships to the eastern seaboard with printing presses, and they printed up all the paper money they could to destroy the balance, which, again, without the technology, was easy to do. Um, So in early America, uh, they were on probably the correct form of money until 1812. When the War of 1812 came, um, the United States has basically been back on the British banking systems, I would even say today. So.
0: So, you know, philosophically, I noticed in your book that, you know, you come from a space of, of abundance versus a space of scarcity. And, and a lot of that is a philosophy of mind, um, you know, to consider that all around you is abundant or all around you is scarce. In the world of digital assets, there's huge abundancy because there's so many offerings in solutions and utility tokens and, 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 and security tokens and, of course, um, currencies, cryptocurrencies occurring. One of the things that I've often spoken about is the fact that digital assets, securitization of assets and digitizing it and then fractionating it makes it become democratic. In other words, anybody anywhere in the world can earn a small slither of something anywhere in the world because it's been fractionated. So in essence, the, the aspect of fractionating and digitizing things creates abundance. And should then go against the concept of scarcity to a degree. It's just you'll have an abundance of variation versus fiat currency, real estate, equities, and bonds, um, which is the traditional way of looking at uh, investment assets. Do you see, you know, the, this blockchain-driven environment with all of its digital offerings um, as being a really viable solution um, over a period of time to start changing? This money game we see, this game that sort of says that, that, you know, that cash is a medium of exchange, a unit of account, a store of value, divisibility, it's got portability, et cetera, and all of a sudden people are in control of their own destiny and do you think that's going to be problematic to the existing infrastructure that's in place?
2: I think it supports the existing infrastructure. You know, um, yes, I think it's so important. I think it's vital. I think it is the re-democratization of access to capital, of access to investment, of fostering creativity. Um, you know, it's 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 all of what it's it's truly decentralized finance. And of course, there has to be an opportunity to verify, people have to be educated in terms of the risks they're taking and these kinds of things. And all of that can be moderated. It can be intermediated from a host, whether it's experts, um, you know, it's even some types of insurance that could come, you know, all these kinds of ways, it's all solvable, um, as is technically interest rate risk, as we even see with banks managing their capital, it's all technically solvable. Um, but the main issue is really the difference between even money and investment. Um, But, uh, you know, When you look again at nature, because I think nature is sort of the greatest metaphor of symbiosis and, and, and also embodying this seemingly contradiction which we embody, which is each one of us is completely separate, totally unique, irreplaceable, and yet we are all completely inseparable from one another. You know, it it doesn't matter what thing we touch in our homes or any anything that we go through to the during the day, it required thousands of people to bring us that right? Of you know, we're yeah. so connected. And so we really are like fingers on a hand. And so how is it that we can create our systems that were our institutions to embody the same type of representative paradigm? And because I think we've come from, oh, we're all separate. Oh, no, we're all one, you know, um, that we get this, this kind of whiplashing back and forth. Maybe that's even the basis of the argument between communism and libertarianism, you know, something like this. Mm-hmm. So um when you look at nature it it always thrives through a biosphere of diversity and when you look at what blockchain with you know provides is in fact that prototype that fertile ground that nature thrives with and so if we were to have a multitude of issuers of anything Um, Already, we have by far more chance of fortifying the system, um, creating greater choice, having greater learning, greater development, greater innovation, and greater information for what regulation would really be appropriate. So this is also the concern about the central bank digital currencies um, for even what type of benefits they would bring. They also create a pipeline that can easily lend itself toward totalitarianism. So how is it that there would be checkpoints on that? And you could even relate that to what happened in Japan. Japan made a hard change when really the U.S. took over or the U.S. banking system took over, and um, everything went to central banks planning their economy versus the greater sense and you had, you know, what w- what was Tokyo worth more than California? Something like that. Um, you know, and you had this incredible sort of steep pyramidical hierarchical class system suddenly. And so the problem when money is controlled and becomes scarce, you get oligarchies, you you get the return of feudalism always. And so it looks like it's a battle of socialism versus versus capitalism. It isn't. It's it's really just saying there isn't. Access like the fractionalization, Derek, that you're pointing to. Um, or certainly that, you know, if we look at real estate prices and all these other kinds of things, the fractionalization of being able to be part, you know, which is very different than a traditional REIT or real estate investment trust that one would buy in the stock market. I would think it's much more personal, it's much more viable. Um, so it is this. It's 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 what blockchain in its best form, it gives us the opportunity really with web you know, with, with 3.0 perspective that we get to monetize and own our own production, our own contributions. And, you know, so for people, in, and when I talk about this sort of in diverse spaces and people who are afraid of blockchain or afraid of these kinds of things, I say, you know, what, whatever technology is coming, it can be used for good or for bad, but it doesn't matter. It's 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 always going to be used for both. So yeah. are we building systems, right? You know, wh- where's our intention? And it doesn't matter, you know, what it's being used for as long as we're, we're continuing to build and, and, and create other opportunities that are really solidifying that liberation and that flow for people.
1: So two questions for you, Kristen, you talked about CBDC and having delivered about like 19 in a lifetime, CBDC projects around the world. This is early days of experimentation. I think, they've only adopted the technical element of it this is tokenization blockchain but the fundamental tenets of introduction of money into the system still remains so of course in the west the concerns around privacy the concerns around supervision concerns around the uh, you know the ability for the government to be able to have surveillance uh, that's a concern of course in some co- some parts of the world that's not the concern the concern is you know digital penetration and and ability for for having economic inclusion so it's it's quite diverse the conversations but it's still centralized governance still issuance so all we're doing is digitizing the form factor so that's one data point at least for me to say hey while i get all the benefits of digital transactions it's hard for people to hide money it's hard for the black money or dark money to, to evolve it becomes harder because everything is traceable uh, which is not the case with cash uh, it's some of the advantages the transmission of money the transformation of protocols that allows us to be able to have programmability. All those are great things. But of course, as you rightly mentioned, any technology has pluses and minuses that we have to evaluate from that perspective. Uh, so that's one, one question. Love to get your thoughts on that. Second question I have for you, which I think is quite profound as you go into the Web3O narrative, right? Web3O being the sort of the catchphrase for all things creator led, And you're going after producer credits, the ability for me to be able to issue tokens that are recognizing my credence in terms of ability to create something and and and, and, and putting value to it. And, and to your example, if I issue too much of that and I don't have a lot of creative power, then I'm sort of increasing inflation and, and becomes worthless over time. Uh, given that, given that we have 200,000 different tokens in the ecosystem, what is your sense of, I mean, knowing what you know and what you have documented, in sort of evolution of money itself, right? As, as a student of, of, of in trying to understand money and, and its impact on society, how do you see these massive tokens which many of them are fraudulent, many of them don't even meet the basic requirements of things of value, so to speak. And you're talking about the ability for me to be able to say, hey, Nitin, uh is able to create token, Nithin does these things, so you can use those tokens to be able to leverage for his time or his skill sets. or let's say I'm using Kristen's sort of tokens, for me to have access to your time, to your talents. How do you see that evolving? So again, long-winded questions, two parts to this. Love to get your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I'll start with the um, latter part. You know, I mean, truth be told, I'm really, even though it is production credit, I'm really saying that companies will do it. Um, that's that's ultimately what I think we will see. I think it'll be unstoppable. In fact, I think for sure it's coming. I know of one that's already um, happening in California, but- um, You know, and even that, that would make the CBDC, regardless of which way it goes, completely tolerable and then also acceptable because choice, as long as people have choice as to which money they use um, and access to capital and access to their own money, then anything that gets created is perfectly fine right um what i i do think we're going to see hypothetically speaking you know because i have no evidence that this is occurring at this point i think we're going to see amazon issuing its own money backed by its credit Apple, Toyota, you know, Uber, Airbnb would be perfect examples, and they would also really be able to solve their, um, you know, kind of smeared reputations by taking advantage of their contractors. You know, the um, I think the court case was just settled in California saying that Uber drivers really are contractors, you know, they're not employees, which makes sense, but at the same point in time to resolve that issue that, you know, maybe the network is just profiting from the labor. If, in fact, Uber or Airbnb issued their own credit backed by a certain amount of rides or a certain amount of stays, and they only could issue X amount of credit, limited by supply and demand. So how much supply do they have of the services they're promising, limited by the legitimate market demand for those products and services, all of which would have to be verified through technology. and. As the system got more sophisticated, it would be real-time. It certainly would be a competitor to the bond market, or it would open another market, right? It might even make the bond market much stronger because we'd have total transparency of demand of all those corporate services and real supply. So if that happened, let's say that Uber and Airbnb were to issue their own credit backed by a particular amount, which they would set the terms of their of their services. Um, It would be issued every production cycle. Um, And then these dollars, right, would be in the wallet. Your wallet would be on reject immediately. And then you would choose which corporate production credits you're going to accept. Maybe you accept Monsanto, maybe you don't. Maybe you take Raytheon, maybe you don't. Maybe you take the United States government, maybe you don't. Um, so it's it's all, it would work really in the true biosphere that way, and there would be real competition. So if you take this, then um, they, 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 it's immediately decentralized finance because these companies are doing a capital raise right away from their customers. The reputations are wholly important. It solves some of the issues that socialists would say are bad about capitalism, but true investment capitalism, which I argue today we don't have, um, would now come to the forefront because the firms would be completely dependent solely on making their customers happy and now um if if those credits so they could raise their capital without interest um they also would have certainly an ability to have a greater profitability which then they could do revenue sharing with either drivers or homeowners and say you know you you have this amount of um, rentals. We pay for your house and your home insurance. Um, oh, you can update your bathroom. We'll pay for your car insurance. You know, you can get car washes. There's a whole host of ways they could actually come back and support their producers, yeah. and um, and then on top of it, it could inject money into the money supply that we know is legitimate because it would be backed by a real amount of production that is. Possible the supply exists versus the demand, and now it's not fake monetary inflation. So, and it's also circulating where the real people doing the work is. The problem when you create money through the banking system as bank credit, as mortgages, it typically stays at the top of the pyramid in terms of the finance insurance, real estate sector, and the people doing a lot of labor in the work can't access the money. So even if they have great thriving businesses, because they have to repay their debt in federal reserve notes or proxy bank credit, it may be not flowing in time for them to pay their loans and they can go bankrupt. So when you issue money straight from the producers themselves, it circulates where the real people are actually doing the business um so this i see i actually see it unstoppable i you know i have no evidence that amazon or apple or any of these you know i mean certainly amazon has coin inside its own ecosystem for digital but the other big part of this is you would have the parity principle so that um an example i could use again hypothetical if apple were to issue its own money and let's say the iPhone 20 was coming, they would say, this is what we forecast as the demand for the product. And let's say they issued their Apple dollar representing a certain amount of credit for that particular product. Now we might buy it just because I prefer to have Apple dollars. Maybe I think they protect my purchasing power better. And um, and as long as someone accepts them, they're going to be accepted for money. And the wallets would do the fungible exchanges when we went to... You know, we wouldn't have to say, oh, how much is this Apple versus the coffee? No, no, no. We know the technology would do that exchange. But if Apple were to bring the product to market and let's say they said there was just going to be a million dollars worth of demand, but it turned out there was a hundred million dollars of demand for the product. Now my Apple dollar would be worth a hundred, but this is money. So it's not, to. Ha- it's you want an NAV, just like a mutual fund you or a money market, you want it to be at a dollar, right? So this is like a self-sustaining this is the real stable coins. Um, And I think this is really what eventually should replace stable coins. But um, nonetheless, um, so, you know, so Apple now says, wow, we had, you know, 99 times more demand for our products. So, but who has their profit? The credit holders, right? And so now, but it's no problem. Apple just simply has to issue 99 million more Apple dollars. But how do they do that? They do it by spending. So now right away, companies are realizing their profit and their profits are flowing. So there's no hoarding. And of course, it's a free society. So they can choose any which way they want to spend their profit. Do they want to bonus themselves? Do they want to buy yachts and mansions? Perfectly fine. They do what they want. Do they want to clean rivers, plant trees, give salaries? salary increases to all their employees perfectly fine but it's transparent it's known to their to their credit you know to their to to um you know whoever's buying their credit so and then really where we start with this is um communities and and this is what you saw i, I this is why i believe it's really wildcat banking 3.0 um farmers communities um, all types of people will have the opportunity to issue producer back credits backed by a certain amount of what they do. But again, it's usually not going to be an individual or a small business. Yeah. It could be a farmer or a set of farmers. And just think about it if they had issued their producer credit worth a certain carton of eggs, <laughs> you know, it'd still only be worth those many eggs, but the purchasing power of those farmer credits would be worth a lot more than one Federal Reserve note today. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I completely agree. And I think, yeah, it certainly shows you that there's there's no chance that a vision like this, an opportunity to fractionate both assets and personal effort, can occur utilizing a fiat currency distribution through banks. And the reason it can't occur is because you simply can't fractionate the assets, you can't put smart contracts around the offerings that these that these companies would have or these producers or co- cooperatives would have. Um, you can't create virtual f- f- frequent flyer programs off the acquisition. So if you buy an Apple phone and you buy an Apple laptop, then you wait a sec, you start to get headphones for free and you start to get a, appliances and peripherals for free, etc. Because your access is giving you those, those, those smart contract driven um, frequent flyer points that you're going to get with it because you're starting to build a community around Apple. That doesn't happen with a dollar. It, it, happens, it happens when you're creating community and community is getting created, growing rapidly with Metcalfe's law um, and all of a sudden power comes to the token and it grows too. And there can be dozens and dozens and thousands of tokens. Ultimately, as you say, a wallet can swap them instantaneously from one, one to another. None of that can happen with a fiat currency. And yeah, so that, you know, that just the building of these communities off blockchains is, is, I think, an incredibly solid argument for the concept of abundance. But what we don't have in abundance um, is time. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say thank you very much indeed um, for your time and, and thank you so much for appearing on the show. For those that are listening, you know, The End of Scarcity um, by Christian Raggeson, really it's an extraordinary book because the concept of being plentiful versus scarcity is a great mindset set itself. And a review of how the monetary system works is a fascinating thing to, to, um, to understand. Thank you so much for coming along. Thank you, Nitin, for inviting Christian along. Thank you so much indeed.
1: No, I would echo thanks. that, uh, Derek. And Kristen, thanks again. I think I read two books that that made me think, and one was Bernard Leitner's Rethinking Money, and the other one was yours. It really helps you sort of get to the gravity of, and again, I think your book has embodiments of tokenomics, which people take it for granted, but it's such an important part of designing a system and everything that we do in crypto space and the token space is built by the community and hence focus on community in general. So very pertinent given the times we live in and thank you for being here and giving us your time and your thoughts.
2: Oh, thank you, it was so much fun. I really appreciate it, yeah. Yeah. And I know that we can do this. So it's, it's, we are the first generation who has blockchain plus the ancient simple wisdom of money merging. So we are the generation who was meant to do this from thousands of years, it's exciting times.
0: Fabulous. Thanks.
2: Thanks,
0: everyone. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.